Hey, I'm Sarah Turnbull, and you're listening to Explain Like I'm Five on the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. Canada has welcomed the digital economy like few other countries, but we're still reliant on physical identity documents to access government services or complete high-value transactions. Interact is working to address this gap and make a secure, convenient, and private-enhancing digital ID ecosystem a reality for Canadians. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. Cybersecurity is one of those things most of us were taught about very briefly when we were young, usually when we first got access to a computer. Between sessions of ICQ messaging with friends, my parents would warn me about someone trying to hack my email or ask me for money online. Nowadays, those threats look a lot different, both on an individual and national level. To help me understand cybersecurity more broadly, including who polices online, the impact of social media, and how we plan on protecting the integrity of our next election, I'm joined by Stephanie McClellan, Senior Research Associate at the Centre for International Governance Innovation. I reached her in Waterloo. Hey, Stephanie. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Good, thank you. So we're talking about cybersecurity here, and I feel like it's going to help me if I separate those two words out, like cyber and security, so protecting ourselves online. But can you help me out with what is the actual definition? Um, what are the parameters of the of this term? Um, that's a surprisingly complicated question, actually. Uh, I mean, traditionally, cybersecurity uh, is thought of as anything that if people are using computers to uh, you know, to attack their targets, or if they're using digital technology uh, to to harm people, to steal information, uh, to attack an adversary, um, any of those things. One of the the earliest known attacks was uh, something called the D- Distributed Denial of Service Attack, or DDoS, uh, that was launched against Estonia. And that took down a whole bunch of government services and banks and things like that all at the same time. The lines sort of defining what cybersecurity is, I think, have become a lot more blurry recently with things like you know the uh, information and influence activities. Uh, so, for instance, last year um, there was the I don't know if you remember the uh, the fake missile alert uh, that was sent out uh, to Hawaii, uh, and that was that was an accident. But it's the kind of thing where if uh, if an adversary had wanted to do something something like that. That's something that could have caused mass chaos uh, and mass panic and, and possibly you know, cost lives even. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's things like uh, terrorists using social media and various platforms for recruitment and propaganda, uh, even things like the, the mob killings that have happened in India uh, because of rumors that have spread on WhatsApp. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, what's a, what's a security issue that happens to have some you know, internet or digital involvement right. and what, what's a strict cybersecurity issue. Right. Uh, it's kind of hard to separate them. Yeah, because, I mean, I guess nowadays cyber internet is, is sort of intertwined and baked into everything we talk about. So who in ch- is in charge of, I'm like, every time you Google uh, cybersecurity, you see like, uh, you know, a pair of handcuffs over over a computer screen or something. Who is in? Is there like a policing body in Canada who's in charge of this uh, of keeping our internet safe? Well, there's a few agencies. So the uh, the Communication Security Establishment, the CSE, 
they're sort of in charge of um, what they call signals intelligence. So this would be, you know, digital communications, um, you know, intercepting those things to see if there's uh, if there are attacks planned. Uh, but their mandate is that they can only do this uh, for foreign entities. So they can't do it for anyone who's in Canada or using Canadian networks. Um, so the RCMP uh, does that uh, from a, a domestic perspective and, and other law enforcement agencies um, that focus a little bit more on cybercrime and on other ways that uh, the internet can be used for um, security threats. Uh, but this also touches on, um, you know, the Global Affairs Canada because this, there's a, there's an element of diplomacy involved, um, or the Department of National Defense uh, because it can also have an involvement with uh, with the armed forces. Um, and one other thing to keep in mind is that uh, right now uh, C-59 is in front of the, the Senate. That's the, the bill, a uh, major security bill. And one of the things that will do is it'll, uh, it'll include the CSE Act, uh, which will set out more clearly what the, the mandate of the CSE will be and what it's allowed to do. Uh, and that includes uh, something about uh, it, would, it would allow the CSE to conduct uh, active and defensive cyber operations. So right now there's really nobody in Canada who is explicitly authorized by law uh, to tack back against somebody that, that's planning an attack against us. Uh, so this would give them the power to do that. That's kind of terrifying that, that we don't have something like that in place. Reassuring to know it, it, it is coming. So what would happen then? Give me like a play-by-play, an example situation. Someone like from the start of, of someone trying to hack something or go in and commit a, commit a crime online to how it would be um, flagged and then responded to. I think that it really depends on the situation, um, because again, if, it, if it's something like if it's uh, if it's people hacking, you know, personal information, um, you know, stealing credit card numbers or, or st- selling stolen data online, uh, that's probably going to be more of a, a law enforcement issue. But then, if it's something like a, a state, uh, a, you know, foreign state getting involved, uh, that's that's where things get a lot more complicated uh, because we don't really have, um, you know, an international, you know, humanitarian law or international laws of war um, for cyberspace. Um, there has been some progress made in this area. Uh, so the UN has uh, created a group of governmental experts, uh, and they've been meeting on this over the last few years. So they've sort of established the principle that um, if if a state launches a cyber attack against another state uh, and it causes damage that's consistent with the damage that would be caused from a physical attack, then the state that's attacked uh, is able to to fire back or to use force against them. Uh, but the problem is that the, the vast majority of cyber operations uh, come below that threshold. So th- if there are things that can be damaging, um, you know, for instance, there was the huge uh, ransomware attack uh, a couple of years ago that affected hospitals in the United Kingdom, um, or even the uh, the U.S. election of 2016, where we know that there was, there was foreign interference, and it, it, did, uh, it did create chaos and confusion. Uh, but because it's not a physical attack, uh, there's this sort of gray area about what you can actually Actually do, uh, and there hasn't really been because this is evolving so quickly. Um, there hasn't really been a precedent for for what states can do or not. That's so interesting that you mentioned that that UN um, the UN progress there. I mean, I'm just thinking about if if something like let's say a country was threatened or um, attacked online. It's interesting to me that okay, you can respond with with force. 
Yeah, but again, only if the damage is equivalent to to damage that would be caused by uh, a bomb dropping. So right. let's say if there is a... But it's so um, hard to measure that. It really it is, and that's part of the issue is that you don't know. Um, it, you know, technically there there is the you know, there's the UN group. Um, there's something called the Talon Manual, which is sort of international law experts have developed. Uh, they, they've developed sort of a, an advisory for what uh, you know for for what how states can respond uh, to to attacks that are below the threshold. Um, but this hasn't been really road tested in a lot of ways. So there are things states can do besides responding with force. Um, you know, there, there's things like sanctions. Um, we've seen uh, more frequently over the past six months to a year um, cases where a whole bunch of countries have sort of united together uh, to name and shame countries that they say are doing this. Uh, we've seen this happen with with China uh, and some of their uh, their you know cyber spying activities, um, or you know North Korea with with some of the the activities that they've done. Um, so I mean, so far. It's a question of how effective uh, those are going to be, um, because at this point China hasn't really showed any signs of showed any signs of slowing down. So uh, everyone's still trying to figure this out. I imagine it, things get more complex, or or the very nature of this crime, uh, cyber attacks become more complex, given that it's non it's non geographical based and it's by non it can be by non state actors right yeah absolutely uh and even when it is a state actor um it, it's it, there's a lot of uh plausible deniability built into it so if it was uh, if there were, if somebody was launching a missile you can do uh you, you can see where it came from you can see when it was launched uh it's it's kind of got a you know there's a trail to it that you can trace but with with cyber activities, um, it's uh, in some cases it's really difficult because you can mask your steps and you can pretend that it's coming from somewhere else. So there are it, it's not impossible, um, and you know, definitely the the people who are, are doing the cyber analysis can team up with people who do traditional intelligence. Uh, there's other ways to attribute these attacks, uh, but again, it's uh, it's a little more complicated from that perspective. Yeah, and instead of countries puffing their chests out with military capacity and state-of-the-art machinery. It's now the case that countries are, are looking to boost their cyber capabilities and their spying activity and, and whatnot. And one issue related to that is, um, you know, you do see countries like, you know, like Russia and China, where they're really investing in this. Um, and in countries, you know, in North America and the Western world, um, there are there's still a huge skills shortage uh, in, in cybersecurity. And a lot of people who do have these skills are going into the private sector because it's far better paid than the public sector. Okay, yes, that makes sense. Now, what you kind of mentioned this off the top, what are... What would be an example of a cyber threat that we'd be worried about when this first kind of came onto the scene versus how it's changed now? Yeah, well, I, I gave the example of, of Estonia, um, which was, uh, again, it was a massive uh, DDoS attack. Um, it was bringing down government websites, banks. Uh, it was you know, almost ground the country to a halt for a few days. Um, and there, there were things, another big example uh, was Stuxnet. Uh, and this is, uh, they've, you know, they've denied it, but it's been widely attributed to the United States and Israel uh, going in and doing, uh, doing damage to Iran's uh, nuclear enrichment program using, uh, using cyber operations that were, were tied to the physical um, nuclear centrifuges. 
So, uh, and, and today, I mean, you've, you've got those threats. Um, you know, there's been, uh, you know, Russia was, uh, was blamed for hacking into uh, Ukrainian power grids a couple of years ago. Um, ransomware uh, was something where uh, it, it's, a, it's a form of malware, so uh, almost like a virus uh, that will spread through an organization's computer system uh, and basically lock all your data unless you pay a ransom. So we, we've seen a couple of very, uh, very prominent instances of that. Um, but as I said, I mean, this can take a whole bunch of different forms, um, especially with the spread of social media um, and where that, uh, you know, people who are coming online in vast numbers, um, you know, who don't necessarily have uh, the digital literacy, um, that just makes it easier, I think, for, for people to be taken advantage of. Um, and we've seen, uh, you know, the horrible consequences in, in Myanmar, for example, where a whole bunch of people were coming online for the first time uh, and government operatives were able to use uh, Facebook to spread, um, you know, hateful propaganda against the Rohingya, the Rohingya people. And that was uh, you know, blamed by the UN as being a factor in the genocide, is that they'd sort of set this, uh, this environment where um, you know, hate speech was more widely uh, available and accepted. It is. It's yeah, and I mean, we can go back to you've already mentioned this too, but the 2016 U.S. election. I mean, that was sort of our. I think that was sort of many people's first awareness of or or or, or knowledge of. Okay, wow, this can really happen close to home. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this kind of thing, it's sometimes called influence operations or information operations. And that's not new. It, it goes back to the Cold War and even before that. Um, but what the what the Internet does and what, what social media does is it makes it more accessible. Um, it makes uh, more people, it's easier to target more people at once. Uh, it's easier for it to spread really quickly. Uh, and unlike, you know, in the 1960s or during the Cold War, when uh, you, you'd have a few newspapers and broadcasters who were really the gatekeepers of information, anybody can put something out there and there's a chance that it, it can spread widely. You don't have to be, you don't have to go through a newspaper to make that happen. Right. So a report was released last week by the Canadian Center for, for Cybersecurity stating, among other things, that, that Canada's upcoming federal election would very likely be a target of foreign interference like we saw in 2016. How can that happen? I mean, is it going to be the same way we saw um, Russian trolls? We heard a lot about Russian trolls in the last uh, in the U.S. election. I mean, is it going to be that kind of similar story? Uh, that's what they're expecting at this point. Um, and they're, they're saying that this won't be as bad as the U.S. election, um, possibly, I think, because um, you know, people are more aware of it and, and the social media companies have begun to take action against it. Uh, but that's what they're saying is most likely to happen. Um, but there's sort of three ways when, where you, you, can, uh, you can have uh, foreign interference in election. So the first that they've identified is, is by targeting the voters. Um, so that's you know, the kind of uh, you know, Russian trolls or other trolls um, interfering with the, the information environment, you know, spreading uh, false, uh, you know, disinformation and false reports online. Um, the second is by uh, interfering with the election itself. Um, so Canada's got a bit of an advantage in that we use paper ballots. So it's, it's a little harder to, uh, to, to mess with the system, um, you know, compared to some places in the United States where, where voting is done electronically. Um, but it would still be possible, um, for instance, if somebody was going to hack into the Elections Canada website uh, and interfere with, uh, you know, send out false results on, uh, on election day or something like that, which, which could change, uh, it could change the vote um, and it could cast people's uh, faith in the election results in doubt. 
the third area is through interfering with uh, political parties or candidates. Uh, so again, this can happen in a few ways. Like they might try to uh, to break into the political parties' uh, databases where they they track their voters. Um, so they could either you know release uh, release harmful information about voters, target voters directly. Um, yeah, or if they've got things like uh, you know schedules for their their get the vote efforts, they could they can mess with that, so they're not able to get their uh, their voters out to the polls. Um, or they could interfere with with candidates directly. You know, release compromising information about them. Um, there, there's all kinds of uh, all kinds of areas that are vulnerable. Like, is it people behind these things, or is it literally like an algorithm or some? Again, like a robot of some sort. I mean, I guess ultimately it's 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 spun off by a person. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's 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 people using technology. Um, so it's uh, you know there there is somebody or, or groups of people who have varying motivations. Um, you know, sometimes they're they're looking to to make money and they're interfering with things uh, just incidentally. Uh, sometimes it's geopolitical goals. Um, sometimes it's people who just you know have their own. Uh, you know, their own political motivations or their ideological motivations. And sometimes it's people who just want to cause chaos. So there's a whole bunch of uh, different motivations involved. Right. And was there anything else, I mean, pertinent to that report? And I mean, I guess it, I guess the other part of it is it's not, we shouldn't be just looking internationally. There's a good chance that, that threats could come domestically as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's been uh, a lot more research about this in the United States, but we've seen a lot of um, particularly far-right groups who sort of organized uh, in closed channels. So they might not be doing this openly. They'll be doing it on uh, like Discord or, or Gab, um, something where, where people can't see what's happening. And they're talking and they're making, uh, they're making plans for how they're going to target people or what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of memes they're going to launch. Uh, and so they're, they're doing this, uh, um, again, either with the aim of, of promoting a candidate or, or um, you know, attacking candidates and viewpoints that they don't like. Um, so it, it happens a lot, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen in the Canadian election this year. I think it's hard, too. I mean, I, I was going to ask, what are some small things we can do to protect ourselves? But I'm just realizing, like, the, what I was taught... Um, about, you know, cyber threats, it would be, I was taught, like, okay, ignore the the email you get that's asking for your social insurance number or your bank account information or something. But now it's so, uh, it's not as transparent as that. It's, it's way more seeped into just regular information you'll see on your favorite social media site. So it's really hard to identify it, I guess I'm saying. Yeah, it is. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, anything that you can do to protect yourself is, is helpful. So, you know, don't reuse passwords, uh, careful about clicking you know, links from strange emails, um, all that kind of thing. Uh, but I think it's also uh, a lot of times I think too much responsibility for this gets pushed on to individuals um, because there are things that we can do to protect ourselves. Um, but it's also like I think we need uh, some policy at the same time to help people, you know, to, to help give people the skills to do this and to help, uh, you know, to help small businesses defend themselves. Um, so there, there's a lot uh, 
that can be done. Uh, media literacy is another huge thing. Um, and there's been, you know, there's been some talk, uh, you know, the, the government has kind of indicated that it is going to be putting more money into digital media literacy uh, as part of its, uh, you know, defense against the election interference. Um, but uh, it, it's a matter of how that's delivered as well, because, uh, you know, teaching kids in school is, is good, it's helpful, um, but a lot of the times it's, it's senior citizens and older people who get taken in by this stuff because they, you know, they didn't grow up with the internet and they're just, uh, they don't uh, necessarily have the sort of BS detector to, to be able to differentiate between quality content and, and not. Right. So, so on the policy side, just lastly, where are we at with that? The bill is in, um, the, the, the bill affecting this is in the Senate, correct? Yeah, yeah. C fifty nine is in the Senate right now, um, but there are. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other things. Um, you know, Bill, Bill C seventy six, the, right. the election bill. I mean, that has elements dealing with this as well. Um, you know, even things like. Uh, um, you know what's our what's our stance diplomatically on whether we call countries out when they do this and standing with other countries. So uh, there's a whole bunch of different areas. As defense, like what what our what our funding situation is like for um, you know for uh, allowing uh, our armed forces to have better uh, better cybersecurity staff. So this it, it affects uh, again it affects almost everything. Um, you know the power grids. It's it becomes a provincial matter at that point if you're looking at energy. So uh, yeah, there, there's. There's a, there's a lot of things that can be done. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, for, for joining me and, and helping explain this very complicated issue. Uh, hopefully we can chat again. I hope so, too. For Canadians, paying with Interact Debit is synonymous with access to your own money. In 2018, Canadians made over $6 billion Interact Debit transactions, the equivalent of $160 per person. Interact Debit is accepted at nearly 500,000 businesses across Canada and growing. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.